Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be here with you tonight as we begin a brand new series entitled Holy. We're thinking about our holy God and how he calls us holy to follow him. And we're doing that by looking at Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah receives his call as a prophet and experiences the majesty of God. Can you imagine being in the presence of God, seeing the glory of God before you, seeing the angelic council surrounding the throne of God, praising God? Can you imagine how amazing that would be? Well, it'd be amazing, but it'd also be something else, and that's terrifying, because as Isaiah experiences, he comes before this holy God and knows profoundly that he is not. That's the experience that we would have, and yet our holy God, the God that gives us his word, gives us this story and points us to his love. That this God who is so holy, even as we are are anything but, is a God who actually cares about us. It's the very reason we have this word to read. And so let's come before him and ask for his guidance. And then as we dig into this scripture, we, we will learn more about our holy God and his care for us. Let's pray. Father, you indeed are the one who is holy, the only one who is truly holy. And as we encounter your holiness, we are reminded that that we are not those who are holy, but rather those who so often run as far as possible from holiness and, and do things that are deeply displeasing to you. And yet you truly are the one who is holy. And yet... In that holiness, you love us and you call us to yourself and you enable us to know you, the God of all the universe. As we read this passage over the next several weeks, Lord, would you help us to understand better who you are, what you are doing in our lives, and how you call us into your glorious presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This bridge that you see on screen looks like a pretty ordinary bridge, doesn't it? We see bridges like this all over the place. Now, now this one I'm kind of partial to because I love Table Rock Lake, and this is on Table Rock Lake. If you've driven across the lake and you're headed to Kimberling City, perhaps you've gone over this bridge. But it looks like a pretty ordinary bridge. It's just a cantilever bridge. And yet, while it looks like it's just right above the water's surface, if you know anything about Table Rock Lake, you know there's more of a story there. Because you see, Table Rock is an artificially created lake, like many of the lakes in our region. And so while this bridge is right on the current surface level of the water, if you rewound the clock 100 years, you'd realize this bridge would be way, way, way above the existing water of the time. And there are remarkable photos from the 1950s when they were preparing to flood the area with water and were building a hydroelectric dam that would form Table Rock Lake of the existing bridge that went over the river that still is there today. And it fascinates me. I've never gone scuba diving, and yet I've talked to people who have, and they talk about the amazing things under this lake, including that bridge that remains there today, and towns and villages and trees. I saw some footage of being under the water at Table Rock scuba diving earlier this week, and a commenter on YouTube was talking about imagining this majestic Ozark forest with the deer running through it and everything seeming normal until the day that it flooded. There's so much more under the surface of what looks like an ordinary lake. And in a similar way, when we think about God, we often sort of think of the surface level. We read about God in in the scriptures and he sounds 
amazing. He sounds like the God of the universe. And yet somehow we, we tame that and we, we start to think of God sort of as just the surface level water and, and sort of like looking at a beautiful lake, but it looking just like, oh, here's some water. It, it seems, even in his holiness, sort of ordinary. And in that we underestimate God's holiness, just as if you looked at that bridge, you'd underestimate what was going on under the surface there. And you'd underestimate how much water was there and, and, and what had happened there. We look at our God and, and do we really capture the, the essence of coming into his holy presence? Well, that's what Isaiah describes in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And let's go ahead and take a look there. If you turn there with me, and see what it's like to see the full majesty of God. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, the, the God of the universe that had made him and had made everything. And, and, and he sees these angelic beings, these unfallen creatures that, that God has made, and even they are using their wings to, to cover their faces so that they, they don't experience the full holiness of God. It's an incredible scene, and it's an incredible scene of the king of the universe. And it, it's notable that Isaiah situates this experience that he has in the year that King Uzziah died. Because here's the king of Judah, the king of Isaiah's land. And if you lived in a land with a kingdom... Or even today, when we, we think about lands with kingdoms, we think of the majesty around royalty. I mean, the United States have somewhat of a fascination oftentimes with the British monarchy, and, and so maybe we have a slight taste of this. But, but here's a land that truly lives or dies on its king. You have a land in which the king is the absolute ruler. And Uzziah isn't just any king. He's a king who, towards the end of his life, is being punished for his unfaithfulness towards the Lord. He he didn't pay attention to how he was supposed to worship the Lord. He wanted to do things his own way, and he's struck with leprosy and cast out of his own palace. His son is ruling in his place, and so we see this king who, in theory, should be ruling and in charge, who spends his last years somewhat of an exile. He can't even be buried, ultimately, with the other kings because he's seen as unclean. And so in the contrast of, of King Uzziah, who, who in theory should be in charge and leading and yet is set aside and then dies, here's the true king, the real king, the one who has power. And, and it's so amazing for us to think about a king who has power, but think about it for the people of Judah who have been watching this uncertainty around their king for years. And on top of just the uncertainty around Uzziah, this is taking place maybe around, people debate the exact date, but probably around 739 BC. And, and during that time, the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. The threat to Judah is remarkable. The Syrians were, were right at the borders, ready 
to, to pounce. And in fact, they would pounce on the northern kingdom on, on Israel shortly thereafter. And, and so here you have this powerful king threatening. You have a weak, exilish king that's supposed to be leading your land. And then in the context of all that going on, Isaiah comes into the one king's presence who actually has true control. You have an unclean king, and then you have a king who isn't just clean, but is holy. And so this is the context in which Isaiah encounters the Lord. And here this king, just like every king would have, his council would have a court surrounding him. The Lord has one too, and yet these are majestic, almost indescribable beings. And, and even though those beings are so spectacular that human beings would be tempted to worship them, they realize they aren't even in a proper place to come and just gaze upon the Lord. They, they cover their faces. They're, they're shielding themselves from God's holiness. As they proclaim, holy, 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 they are in awe. They, they see this wonder, and Isaiah sees this as well, and he's just taking this in. Holy, holy, holy. Commentators have, have reflected on that declaration from the angels and said that it, it seems like a hint, and it, and it very well could be, of the Trinity that we'd later understand as God reveals more of himself. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, in some sense, is seeing the fullness of God in this court. And if we think maybe that's a stretch, we actually see confirmation in the Gospels that it isn't. Take a look at John chapter 12. As Jesus is being rejected, there's this quote from this chapter of Isaiah. John quotes, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And then John goes on, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What are we told here? The, the, the amazing, majestic glory that, that Isaiah is experiencing in Isaiah 6 is the glory that was right in front of the people in the synagogue when Jesus was teaching. Indeed, the triune God, the God that Isaiah was experiencing, Jesus was there. He is God. And then he was teaching. And what happens when he's teaching in the synagogue? Well, the, the people hear it, but but they they just look at the surface level water. They, they see a person up there, and yes, he's teaching with authority, and, and some of them get an idea that maybe there's something to this whole message that Jesus is sharing. And yet they look at the surface and they think, oh, there's just some nice water. And yet what John says is you need to scuba dive under. You need to go under the water. You need to see that this water is hundreds of feet deep. The, the majesty of God is far greater than what you're imagining. But but they look at, at Jesus and say, well, we don't want to lose the glory of man. We don't want to lose humans' praise towards us. And, and while that seems ridiculous to us, we know who Jesus is and we think, well, how could they be so foolish? How often do we do the same? We look at that surface level water of God's majesty and we say, yeah, God's pretty amazing. And, and yet we look at at the things that we can find on this earth, and we think those look pretty amazing too. And 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 then we start to look at ourselves, and we think, well, you know, on, uh, generally speaking, I'm I'm not so bad. 
And we, we, we start to compare ourselves and, and we kind of squint and, and ignore God's glory. And we look at other forms of glory and we look at the things that we achieve. And somehow in that weird conglomeration, we forget the depth of God's glory. We start to think, well, maybe we're mostly good. And we, we read a story like this, but we don't really absorb the, the sheer awe and terror that Isaiah is experiencing in this moment. Because we're just thinking of that surface level glory. Yeah, God's pretty amazing. Yeah, it'd be amazing to be in Jesus' presence. But where are we talking ourselves into thinking, well, if Jesus were here, he would, have, he would really like what I was doing. And we look at some of the good things we do, we ignore some of the bad things we do, and, and suddenly we kind of look like we can compare with that just surface level, average, ordinary day at the beach. But what if we look down at the depth? It's sort of like if you think about if you've ever bought a new piece of furniture for your house and you, you have some older furniture and you put that new piece of furniture there and all of a sudden the old stuff looks really old and worn. It didn't before, but now you, you see this piece that, that isn't torn up and doesn't have any stains and, and the colors are bright and vibrant and the cushions are all nice and full and, and suddenly the old stuff looks old. When we really encounter God's glory, it has that same effect on ourselves. We look at our own glory, our own good attributes, and we realize compared to God, who are we fooling? We might have a little drop of water as our glory, but we look and God is hundreds and thousands and millions of feet deep of glory. That's what Isaiah is experiencing as he comes into God's presence. And we see that reaction as he he realizes that, that not only is God more holy than we can imagine, but he's more sinful, that we're more sinful than we can imagine. Take a look at verse 5. Says, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Confronted with the true depth of God's glory, the gl- true wonder of God's glory, Isaiah doesn't think, Wow, I am so important and special. God, God said I can come and see his presence. He's invited me here. Aren't I great? He doesn't start to build up his own glory. Confronted with the true force of who God is, Isaiah says, I'm done for. Because he looks at himself and he's not just a somewhat worn piece of furniture. He's something that belongs in the dump. And Isaiah says, not only is he a man of unclean lips, as he comes in this scene of worshiping God, but so are his people. So are you and me. Isaiah says here, I'm a human being and, and I mess up. And in, in comparison to this wonder and glory of this God, who even the angelic beings have to cover their eyes to witness, I just need to be wiped off the face of the earth. There, there, I, there, what could I possibly do? And as he talks about the, the problems of worship, this is something that comes up again and again in Isaiah. The, the book doesn't go quite in chronological order. And so we can turn back to chapter 1, and Isaiah talks about this more in verses 14 and 15. He says, The Lord says to his people, Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
and you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. People can try to worship and they can build themselves up. Oh, we're God's chosen people. Oh, we're, we're, we're people who have, have God's word and, and he's given us his law and we know what we're supposed to do. And he says, you have blood on your hands. You are sinful. I'm going to turn from you because your hearts aren't truly turned towards my glory. It's turned towards your own glory. Just like the people that Jesus would encounter where they, they were more concerned with the glory of man than, than the glory of God. So too the people of this time and so too today. And Isaiah looks at himself in the midst of that and says of himself and of his people, I'm doomed. We're doomed because if this is the true force of who God is, and, and Isaiah at this point has no doubt it is because he's experiencing it firsthand. What good is it to do anything? There's nothing that can be done. There's nothing that can salvage. The, the tidal wave is coming and it's going to wipe him out. The light of God comes and shines and it's like when, when you're looking in a room and it looks pretty nice when it's dark and then you turn on the lights and you say, oh, it's kind of messy in here. There's dust, there, there's dirt, there's things that need to be picked up. Well, Isaiah has the full light of God coming upon him and he says, you can't even pick me up. I'm, I'm just done. And this reference to lips, he's thinking about perhaps some different things. He, this is his call as a prophet, so it may be that part of it is his vocation as someone who's going to speak for God. But I think it's more than that. It's, it's, Isaiah recognizes that his lips are going to speak for his heart, and his heart is not fit to come into the holiness of God. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew fifteen eleven. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Jesus says, what really matters is what are we showing of what's inside of us? And, and so often we think, well, if I can just maintain a nice outward appearance, everyone's going to look and see the, the nice water that's there sparkling and glistening in the sun. What does God see? He sees the depths of our heart. And, and unlike when we see the depths of his glory, our heart is terribly unclean. Think about the worst things that you ever think. The worst things you ever feel, those things that, that you never put utterance to in your mouth because you know what other people would think. What about God, the one who, who has no flaws, who has no sin at all? And Isaiah sees that in himself and he sees it of his people. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And I think that that heart issue, the, the idea of what's going on inside of us is really where Isaiah is focused because he, he doesn't just talk of lips of himself, but of the people of God. The people who are supposed to come into the temple and praise God with their lips, but everything coming out of it is going to be tainted by, by the sin inside. What should Isaiah do? There's some thought that maybe as he refers to the people, it's a partial reflection, his unwillingness to let go of the sinfulness of his own people. And again, that's just like us today, isn't it? We know the people around us are, are sinful and doing displeasing things to God, but we want them to approve of us, and so we won't let go. But it also suggests something else. It suggests there is something that's true for Isaiah and for those people, and this starts to develop here. 
Isaiah starts by simply stating where he stands before God. He says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's confessing to God, this is, is who I am, and this is who you are, God, and I'm in trouble. I, I love, a friend of mine was preaching yesterday a, a wonderful sermon on repentance, and, and he talked about how oftentimes our problem when we talk about repentance is we, we think about what we need to do. And we say, even he mentioned this, I thought it was so good. He says, we, you know, we'll pray, God, give me the strength to do what I need to do to, to get out of this sin. And he said, the problem is we're still focused on ourselves. But encountering the full holiness of God as Isaiah is doing here, we can't focus on ourselves when we're being overwhelmed by God's glory. Isaiah doesn't say here, God, give me the strength to be a, a man of clean lips. He just says, I'm doomed. There's nothing I can do. I am utterly in a hopeless state. But God doesn't leave him there. And we see that as we go on in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah goes on, he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's there saying, I'm doomed. There's nothing I can do. There's no hope for me. And God sends this angelic being with a, a coal from the altar and, and touches Isaiah's lips. Isaiah's realized that the lips are identifying the, the uncleanliness of his heart. And that seraphim touches his lips and says something else. He doesn't say, oh, I've now burnt your lips. But what does he say here? He says, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, of course, a piece of coal can't do that. You can't burn the sin out of us. So what's going on here? Well, remember here, we, we, we're in the presence of the triune God. We're told in John 12, Jesus is in this moment. And, and so as Isaiah is touched by the sacrifice on the altar of God, well, what is that sacrifice? It's being touched by a symbol of Jesus' sacrifice. Yes, it's still in the future, but God doesn't work in a way that he doesn't know what's going to happen. For God, it already has happened. And, and so as Isaiah receives that coal, he's being given a sign that his forgiveness is being given to him instantly. The seraphim says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. It's done. And in that moment, he's getting to experience a preview of what God offers to each person. And it's a holiness that's given, it's not earned. Isaiah can't do anything in this moment. He knows he can't do anything in this moment. He's already said that. And yet in this moment, he's cleansed when he should be destroyed. I love what John Golden Gay says in reflecting on this. He says, Isaiah's instinct to infer that holiness will be the end of him turns out to be mistaken. He also learns that holiness can mean forgiveness. You see, God's holiness isn't a holiness that simply wipes out everything he encounters. It could and it should. And yet God is also a God of love who takes that holiness and channels it into the most pure love ever experienced. He takes this man who should be destroyed and he pours grace upon him. And he takes what Isaiah can't do and he transforms him simply by command. He, can't, he doesn't give Isaiah a little strength he just declares him clean. 
think about that. We, we often hear this sort of message. I would imagine most of you listening have heard the message of the gospel in some form, maybe many times. And yet, what do we do over and over again? We think, okay, that's great and that's good. And, and now what can I do? And it's not bad to want to know what I can do. We should respond. Isaiah should respond to this gift of holiness. We should respond to this gift of holiness. But somewhere in our heads in the midst of that, we're thinking, what can I do now that's going to give me the place that I should have as a person who's holy? What's very clear here is Isaiah is not going to do anything. He can't do anything. It's all about what God's done. Maybe you're, you're getting ready to enjoy some Valentine's Day dessert tonight. And if you want, mention in the comments what you're about to enjoy. One of the things I always enjoy are seeing the beautiful donuts they make this time of year, say Krispy Kreme. And if you've ever been in a Krispy Kreme, you, you've probably watched them make donuts at some point, which is so much fun. Here's a Krispy Kreme assembly line in, in action. And, and so you have the proofing of the donuts and, and then the baking of the donuts. And then, of course, the delicious, wonderful glaze pouring down on the donuts that, that makes them the amazing things they are, especially when they're hot. And you, and you look at that donut and you think about it for a moment. If you just took the donut and it was proofed and baked, that donut still has absolutely zero capability of being a delicious donut because without that wonderful glaze that's put on top, it's just sort of this dry, bready thing. If you've ever had a, a part of the same dough that Krispy Kreme uses, but it doesn't have its proper glaze on it, it's really pretty bland. If you take a jelly donut and it doesn't have any jelly or any glaze, it's just sort of a, a bad bread oftentimes. The donut has no capability to make itself delicious. It, it's just a thing. And yet what happens? Well, it goes through that machine and that, that icing is just heaped upon it totally without any ability of the donut to bring it upon itself. And it goes from this, this thing that is, isn't really even worth eating to this wonderful, delicious morsel that, that feels like you're biting into this cloud of sweetness. And we come before God and we say, woe to me. I, I, I am not holy. You are holy. I, I, there's nothing I can do. We come before our God and, and we seek his cleansing. We seek his purification as Isaiah experiences here. It's like God pouring that glaze down upon us. We can't become holy. We can't become a delicious, wonderful thing, a, a, a sweet offering of our lives to God. But when he pours his grace upon us, we do. And just as Isaiah experienced that through that coal, so too today he allows us to experience that. You think about the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why does he give us those things? Well, as John Calvin notes, those things are given to us for the same reason Isaiah is given this coal. God didn't need to use a coal to purify Isaiah. But Isaiah, in his fear and his experience of the wonder of God, needed something he could, he could see, something he could feel, that would remind him that the holy God of the universe loved him. And if you haven't experienced baptism and you experience it and you're baptized, you follow that command of the Lord, what do you experience? You experience that purification of God cleansing you. As we come together as God's people and we take the, the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, what do we experience? It is a sign, just as this is, of that unmerited grace that God gives us. He offers us day in and day out because he is the holy God. Holy, holy, far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Yet also the God who wholly purifies his people. He invites you to experience that purification. He invites me to experience that purification. Would you pray with me, please? 
Lord, indeed, you are holy, holy, holy. You are also holy, loving. And Lord, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time we come before you tonight, Lord, would you purify us? Would you take away the burden of our sins, the ones that, that as we reflect on the ugliness of our heart, we realize that, that we should join Isaiah in saying, woe to us. We should just be destroyed. And yet you do not destroy us, but instead offer us your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, would you allow us to experience that tonight and to rest in it and that love that you give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this encouraged you tonight. And if it did, would you consider giving it a share? Would you consider giving it a like? Leave some comments in the comments below. Help us get the word out about this study as we're going through Isaiah, thinking about our God who is both holy and holy loving. Next week, we're going to pick back up here and we're going to think about Isaiah's calling that's in the next part of this chapter and how God calls him to go and be a prophet. And also, while that doesn't speak directly to any of us, it does give us a sense of how God uses his people and thus speaks to our calling. So I hope you'll join me next week at 7 p.m. on Monday night for that. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please do join us as we're going through the Psalms this year. This week, we're reading Psalm 19 today, Psalm 20 by Wednesday, and Psalm 21. Melanie did a great job overviewing these Psalms last night, and you can go on our site and, and view that if you haven't already. But then join in and then go to grow.faithtree.com throughout the week. We'll be talking about these Psalms and commenting on them together. And if you have questions, we can share those and discuss those as well. It'd be great to share that with you. Speaking of sharing, if there's any way I can be praying for you, please share a prayer request. You can shoot me an email at the email address on the screen. Leave a comment in the comments below. I would love to hear from you and pray for you. And in the meantime, as we, we continue to reflect on our holy God, I hope that you feel the whole love of God this week. Have a wonderful and blessed week.